Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. In T-minus three, two, one, we begin the fun. Touring our way through the NBA from that big, big apple to the place by the bay. Is your mind buckled in? Because it's time to begin. Welcome into another edition of the Hangtime Podcast. I'm your host, Sekou Smith, here in Atlanta, quarantined, working from home like everybody else, sheltered in place. Uh, our special guest this week is doing the same, and, and you know him as, as not only a coach, but, but now as one of our ace analysts on uh, TNT and NBA TV, Stan Van Gundy, joining us here on the Hangtime Podcast. Coach, uh, Good morning. How's the family? Is everybody safe and 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 sound and and uh, and, and doing well during this this pandemic? They are. Our, you know, we've got four kids and they're spread out. We've got two in Michigan and two different places, and one down in Miami and then one here near us. Um, so they're spread out. Uh, my parents, my wife's parents, are both uh, near us here, but. But we're saying we're staying socially distant from them also. But everybody, you know, is doing well. And so got to consider ourselves very fortunate because it's certainly not true of everybody right now. No doubt. No doubt. Now, what kind of weird situation is this for for someone with a with a coaching background? When you look back and realize you've been on on a very specific schedule calendar wise you know, for the last 40 years, basically. I mean, when you when you get into basketball world, everybody knows this time of year what's going on. It's, it's either playoff time if you're in you know, the NBA. It's uh, recruiting time for colleges. It, you know, for high school kids, it's that time where you're getting out on the circuit, playing AAU. How strange is it to have the entire basketball world at a, at a standstill at a time when we're normally so juiced up about the games? Yeah, I mean, this is the best time of the year um, for NBA people. You know, we're in the playoffs and the best teams are playing. And and as you say, there's just a rhythm to basketball. And and so, you know, for a lot of people with kids, um, you know, your calendar is really the school calendar and different businesses have the rhythms of their years. And for me and, and my dad coached, so for my whole life, I mean, the, the rhythm of my life is is the basketball calendar. And, you know, none of us have been through this. You know that. I mean, you've been doing yeah. the same thing for a number of years. And so, you know, it's, it's really different right now. And coaches, it's interesting. I've been on a lot of Zoom calls with guys <laughs> um, doing clinics or just talking basketball and you know, throwing around ideas because never do you really have any kind of prolonged opportunity to do that where everything shuts down. You know, you might get a chance to talk basketball with a friend for a little bit, but then in college they've got recruiting calls or in the NBA you're getting ready for the draft or free agency. There's always something with some urgency to do. And now that everything is shut down, it's just interesting um, the way people have shifted gears and really taken advantage of the time, I think, Sekou, to, to sit back and, you know, look at what they're doing, try to do things better, reflect 
on past things. You were telling me off the air, you know, that what you've been doing going back yeah. through past games and past stories. And, and I think in that way, um, it's a little bit of a silver lining because we don't get the opportunity to do that very often. No, you're right. You're right. And speaking of past games, I was watching, they've been replaying finals games and, uh, Magic Lakers finals game was on one day last week. I think it was. And, uh, they had you in your classic pose over there on the sideline, fuming with your <laughs> arms crossed like you wanted to scream at somebody. And I, I cracked up when I saw it um, because I remember these, you know, you, you remember being at these games and then, you know, and how emotional these series are and how it seems like it's the only thing in the world going on. When you're covering the playoffs or the finals, it seems like the, the, whatever's going on in the rest of the world doesn't even exist. It's just that series, just that game that moment um and it's fascinating to rewatch it to see a young Dwight Howard um playing for the Magic back then to see Kobe you know at that stage of his career um what what are some of your favorite memories just in terms of those moments when you're coaching in the NBA on that big stage yeah, you know, you're absolutely right, first of all. Like, especially when you hit playoff time, it's like you're in a bubble. I mean, I'm someone, as you are, who is, you know, most of the time, 95% of my life, I'm pretty aware of what's going on in the world around me. I, I think I'm pretty engaged with current affairs and things. And then you get in the playoffs, and for however long you're in it, and for that year, we were in it till the end. I mean, you're just in a bubble where you're not paying attention to anything else, um, your family and your job. And that's it. And it's, uh, it's really sort of a, a, a totally absorbing time. And so I, I actually have vivid memories of that, just that <laughs> feeling of being in it so completely. Um, you know, I hate to say it as far as memories, but I think a lot of coaches are like this. You, you tend to remember the losses a lot more than the wins. It's interesting, my brother in his time, he's been calling me because he's been going back and watching our playoff <laughs> games from that year, 2009. Mm -hmm. And he'll talk to me about, you know, these great moments in the Cleveland series and the Boston series that I have a hard time recalling, but <laughs> I got game two of the Cleveland series down when LeBron, you know, beat us with the shot oh, yeah. that they still show at the end. I, I, I know the play that was run. I know where our guys were defensively. I can remember that. I can remember game four of the finals against LA, Derek Fisher hitting a three, um, when we should have fouled him and sent him to the line. I, you know, I can remember all of those things that, you know, you just, they never go away, uh, at least for me, they never go away. And, and you question yourself and question yourself. And boy, I wish I would have done that in the whole thing. Um, so, so that's unfortunately what sticks with me. <laughs> that's interesting. Coaches are always so specific, like you said, about the things that didn't go right. Um, and, and unfortunately, I think, you know, I look back on it now and I realize how good certain players were or, you know, what great jobs certain coaches did, you know, and don't get credit for. Because at the end of the day, the team that wins the championship gets the trophy, the parade and, and all that. But there's so much great play and, and great stuff that goes on. Um, when you look historically at this thing, I, I was laughing, thinking about, I remember Dwayne Wade's rookie year. I remember that team, that Heat team that you were coaching that played Indiana. I was covering the, you know, the Pacers at the time. Um, and I remember that series. I remember being shocked at how effective Wade was as a point guard. I don't even know if a lot of people remember that you were playing him at the point by the time the playoffs rolled around. Um, yeah, he, well, he was our starting point guard all year. Which yeah. I personally think, you know, he was definitely playing out of position because he hadn't even played the point in college. But, you know, I, I think one of, the, one of the things that I've always looked at, and I think most coaches do, is you want to try to find a way to get your best players on the floor. And we had Eddie Jones and Kalan Butler. Um, you know, Eddie, a proven veteran, and Kalan only in his second year. And so – 
you know, we didn't want to put either one of those guys on the bench and we didn't want to put Wade on the bench. So what's your, what's your option? And it was to start Dwayne at the point and then rotate and, and bring Ray Ralston in and, and let him play at the two. But those, that playoffs that year, he'd had a good regular season, a very good regular season. Um, I actually, you know, I'm biased. I thought he should have been the rookie of the year, as great as LeBron <laughs> is. Um, I thought that year he should have been the rookie of the year, Dwayne. But so he'd had a really good year, but the playoffs were his coming out party. His very first playoff game, he hits a game winner with four tenths of a second to go uh, against Baron Davis, you know. And and then in that Indiana series, I mean, a a good veteran team you're playing against. And Ron Artest in his prime trying to guard him. And he's just taking them apart, especially in the two home games in uh, yeah. Miami games three and four. You know, that was his coming out party, I think, where anybody who hadn't realized it before knew this guy then was going to be one of the the true stars in the game for, um, you know, the next decade. And, and I certainly I say I remember the bad times and the losses I do as a coach, but but I certainly remember how great he was and um you know when you just realize time after time for us it was step by step but in those playoffs like wow i mean this guy's already a star in this league yeah um you've coached some generational talent in terms of players who came into the league um and and will go down as all-time great hall of famers when did you know like when you're watching Dwayne or or say Dwight Howard, how long does it take for a coach to figure out, all right, we got something different here? Like, do you go into that first camp when, when they're rookies and recognize it? Do you see that talent, you know, that's that's there and just as a matter of dragging it out? Or does it take longer to figure out exactly what you're dealing with with some of those young guys? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, with Dwayne, like I said before, it was a little bit step-by-step, Seku. I mean – you know, we actually uh, were shocked in the summer league um, because we knew we wanted to play him or try to play him at the point um, mm-hmm. during the season. So we threw him in there in the summer league. And it's a guy who hadn't been a point guard in high school or college. And what really impressed us then was how quickly he learned, um, you know, able to pick things up and the poise that he had um, playing out of position. So I think we knew his talent, obviously, when we picked him. And then when you see that intelligence and poise, you know you have something special. And then during the year, there were, you know, there was great development over the course of the year. Um, and you continued to see the poise, uh, but you really started to see him perform even more and more in late game situations, the confidence he had. Uh, and then the playoffs. So I, I think we we knew he was going to be good when we picked him. We knew he was going to be real good after summer league. Mm-hmm. Um, we watched his rookie year and said, wow, this guy might even get to where he's an all-star. And <laughs> by the playoffs, by the time the playoffs were over, you were saying, wow, there's not going to be 10 better players in this league than Dwayne Wade. So mm-hmm. um, it sort of grew. With Dwight, it was different because – you know, he had already had a couple of years in the league by the time I got here. Uh, right. Three, I think. Three years in the league by the time I got here. So you knew the talent was there and you knew he could do some things. Um, so that one I knew more immediately um, because we'd had a chance to, to see him perform. Um, you knew he still had room to grow. Um, most young guys take a little bit longer than uh, – than the guards. Uh, so you knew he still had room to grow, which is exciting, but certainly knew um, by the time I got the job that, you know, this guy's a star in the making. Now, I, I didn't know until probably halfway through my first year with him that he was a guy capable of carrying a team to the heights that he carried us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I didn't know how intelligent he was, uh, you know, which I think is sort of a marker. All the great players I've been around, and, and you could probably back this up. One of the things that sets them apart is is their intelligence, their basketball yes. IQ. And 
Um, and, and I've been around a lot of guys who are smart, but, but Dwight, the smartest big guy I've been around, and that's no mm. disrespect to Shaq, who was also very, very smart, but, you know, Dwight was uh, super intelligent basketball-wise and put that with his amazing athletic ability and uh, that great body he had and his strength yeah. and everything else. Man, you know, I, people forget, Seku, you know, you see these guys later and after the back injury, he's never really been the same. I have people ask me, as if it's even a question, oh, is Dwight a Hall of Famer? I'm saying, is Dwight a Hall of Famer? <laughs> the guy was five straight years, first team All NBA. Yeah. Go back and check and see how many guys in the history of the game have done that. You know, I mean, it's the elite list. Five yeah. straight years, first team All NBA. That just doesn't happen very often. It's the absolute greats of the game. Three time defensive player of the year. Right. And twice he leads the league in block shots and rebounds. But Ben Wallace, I think the only guy, the only other guy to do that in yeah. this era. I mean, and Ben Wallace wasn't averaging 20 points a game. Exactly. So, you know, you, you do, because after the back injury, he hasn't been the same and whatever people's perception are, they just forget how good <laughs> that guy was. Yeah. That's what I said when I was watching that finals. <clears throat> looking how young he was and how different his body looked. I, and, and the fact that the uniforms were seven times bigger than they are now, by the way. Everybody's uniform was huge, you know, yeah. in, in that old finals. And now guys are wearing these shorts that they're rolling up. But that's that's beside the point. But you just forget how the, the physical transformations that some of these guys have made um, in terms of all the nutritional stuff and the training stuff that's changed just in the last decade is remarkable when you go back and look at, at these games. Um, you, you, there was a, a moment, and you correct me if I'm wrong, because, you know, with my history with the Pacers, I remember there was a time when I was talking to people there where they were trying to get you to be the coach in Indiana before you were the coach in Orlando. Am I right? Yeah, it was the same year. I, I actually, in, uh, in 2007, I, I was, uh, fortunate enough to to interview for four jobs in Charlotte, and I didn't get the job there. San Vincent did, mm-hmm. and in Indiana, Sacramento, and and Orlando. And um, so I went out to Indiana and and interviewed with Larry Bird, and it was really Larry's show. I had interviewed with him. They came down to Florida. I had interviewed with them here. And then went up there and um, met a little bit with Donnie Walsh, but it was really uh, Larry's Larry's mm-hmm. show, and and certainly, you know, great organization as they've continued to be, and um, yeah, it was it was interesting, and I've got roots there a little bit because uh, you know my mom's from Indianapolis, and oh, she's eighty wow. years old, and and grew up in a in a certainly a golden era of Indiana basketball. I mean, she remembers seeing Oscar Robertson play in high school and wow. um yeah, you know, in fact, last year on her way to the final four, I, you know, it, this was so exciting for her because they were headed to the final four. My parents go every year and my mm-hmm. dad still through the coaches organization has tickets and so they go every year and their flight got canceled and so they had to take a connection and go through the Cincinnati airport. In the Cincinnati airport, they run into Oscar Robertson, and my mom gets her picture taken with Oscar Robertson. One of the great, great thrills of, of her life. Um, wow. You know, so, uh, yeah, it's great. But So I had ties to uh, Indiana. My aunt still lived there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's where my mom's whole family grew up, and, and a great organization. Yeah, I was I, when I saw it, I was like, man, I was thinking, like, what a great fit that might have been with the teams that they ended up having. And, you know, and everything happens for a reason. Coach, you know, coaches, I, I know the lifestyle that coaches live is, is unbelievably tough on a family um, to have to pack up and go somewhere different. Uh, you know, and I, when I saw that, and I was like, wow, I didn't remember how it went down, but I thought, what a, what a hell of a choice, you know, when you're dealing with an opportunity to either go there or – you know, go to that Orlando team, both of them ended up being contenders, uh, you know, during that stretch too, which is really interesting. Um, what made the Orlando the right fit, do you think, at that time for you? Well, I'll tell you the biggest thing was 
um, you know, my wife's uh, parents, her mom had, they had lived uh, here in the Orlando area for at that time, probably 20 some years. And so that was the big thing. I mean, you know, we're going to be moving wherever you go, but you're moving to family. And my wife got to be instead of four hours away from her parents, which isn't too bad. I mean, she got to be, um, you know, right here. I mean, her parents, we, we bought a house literally, you know, three or four miles from her parents. Um, and so that was the thing that made this job uh, so attractive. I mean, obviously the talent that was here with Dwight Howard and Tito Turkoglu, Jameer Nelson, J.J. Redick. I mean, that was a nice side benefit too. Don't get me wrong, but but I think what why we focused on this job so much at that time were, were family things. Mm. That's interesting because coaches are often asked to sacrifice a lot, you know, for the profession. Um, it's, it's probably rare when you get to have those family ties factored in. That's that's, that's a special thing when you think about it. Um, you, if you're looking at the way a coach views a team and how you construct something. There's always kind of a certain agenda that to me that coaches have had, they got to, you know, we got to win now. We got to develop whatever we have to develop to win immediately. This game, this next five minutes, we got to win. Then the front office has a completely different view of how you have to go about developing and winning. You, you had to do both in, in Detroit. You get to, to have the coach's hat on and, you know, running the basketball operation as president of basketball operations for the Pistons. How, how much conflict was there between Stan Van Gundy, the coach, and Stan Van Gundy, the GM, when you got to Detroit? You know, I didn't really, I didn't really look at it as any conflict. You know, it was a, um, we were trying to do something that I think, anybody who's run an organization would tell you is, is fairly difficult. And our mandate from our owner, from Tom Gores was pretty simple. We want to win now without sacrificing the future. And so that meant, you know, we weren't going to trade away uh, our young players. Um, You know, we were going to try to preserve whatever assets we had. Um, We weren't going to break, you know, but we also weren't going to break down the team and try to acquire a lot of assets. So you're walking that middle line, which teams like Portland and Indiana have walked for a long time Mm -hmm. and sometimes get criticized for. It's one of the hardest things to do, but there was no conflict really because I think Tom Gores had made it clear what we were going to try to do. And, And I think, you know, your ownership and then your front office, but in this case, the ownership is, is setting the vision and what you're trying to do the best you can um, is execute. And I think we did some things really, really well there and other times we made mistakes. And I think the problem is the hard thing, at least I thought the hard thing, Sekou, is when you're trying to walk that fine line and do both, you're not going all in on winning now and you're not going all in on a rebuild is your mistakes get magnified. You don't have uh, a margin for error. And um, now you see them, you know, after five, six years on that tack, they're going a different direction now. You know, you see it with the trade of uh, Andre Drummond. They're going to head a different direction. Um, They tried it for six years and, and, you know, didn't move along as much as they would like, and they're moving on. It's just it's a hard thing to do. And, And I'll own the mistakes that we made. Um, and those mistakes are just magnified. You know, if, if you make a mistake when you're all in on winning, well, you simply make trades or go into the luxury tax or, or do what you need to do. And if you're on a rebuild, I mean, look at, look at what Philly did. They're all in on a rebuild. They made a lot of draft pick mistakes. Yeah. But when you're all in on it, you've got enough picks and things that you still end up with Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. Um, but when you're not all in one way or another, it's hard. And, and I don't regret that that was our approach. That's one of the reasons that I went there. I like that approach, um, mm-hmm. but it's hard to do. And while I think we made it better, we averaged about nine wins a year more than 
what they had done in the previous years before we went there. So I thought it was a significant improvement. We just didn't get far enough. We, we didn't get it done. And that was a result of, of some of the mistakes that we made that we just couldn't pull ourselves out of. Yeah. I, I wonder too, how many of the, when you start looking at the decisions you have to make, and this is a, an interesting part of it to me, the player evaluation component, um, you can look at talent every year in the draft, you know, and when you're acquiring players, you see there's a level of talent every year. There's always going to be a quality to the talent. But but I don't know if it's the level of talent that dictates or the level of focus, determination and like grind that some of these talented players have that makes it a win or or lose proposition for the players. Like I, I can remember years where you look at a draft class and you go, man, look at all this raw ability, size, and just athleticism, and all these guys have. And then you certain guys get to the league in certain situations, and you find out, well, he doesn't have the this kind of focus or metal as a just as an individual to rise to the level where you think his talent should take him. And then you see other guys who maybe aren't as talented, but but work in, in an environment that's such a, a sweat pit, such a grind, that they're forced to to find that that other part of where they can take their games to. And I don't know how you, if you're a coach or, or a front office person in the NBA, I don't know how you can can quantify that in the evaluation process. How how do how can you can't vet that piece of it to me that 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 is such a huge part of player development in India. Yeah, that's such a great point. I, it is the harder, um, it is the harder component to judge, particularly when you're doing it on so many guys who are in college for one year. You know, I mean, four-year guys, you you've watched them enough. Um, you know, so a Jameer Nelson, you, you know all the intangibles there. You, you've right. seen the guy go through being a young player and, and growing and becoming a leader. And you've seen him in crucial situations. You have a pretty good deal, but these one year guys, you know, I mean, even their coaches trying to give you information, you know, really haven't had them for an off season. In a lot of cases, they sign them. The kids at the most come on campus for summer school and then they're into their season and then they're into the draft. So they haven't seen them take what they did their freshman year and how hard they worked to get ready for their sophomore year. So they're telling you what they think about the guy, but they haven't even seen that kind of work, that kind of progress one way or the other. They can't tell you, Oh God, the guy's really not committed to getting better or he really is. They just, they don't see enough. And so it is difficult. And in a league where pretty much anybody who gets drafted, especially that high, is going to be really talented, um, it is what sets people apart. And, and you know, a bam out of bio, um, you know, oh, the yeah. signs were there probably, but, you know, and Miami did a better job of judging them than the rest of us. But um, it would have been hard to see what bam out of bio's become if you didn't know what the what the work ethic was what the commitment was what the intelligence was and everything else and I think everybody works really hard to determine those things um, but I think also if anybody's being honest some people have been better judging people than others but if anybody's being honest I, I think they would tell you you really don't know until you have them in your in your organization yeah, and, and I am I by no means am poking at anybody because I think it's the most difficult thing to do in any sport. Um, having covered sports for over twenty years, you know, football, basketball, you know, I've, you know, I covered colleges. Uh, the the evaluation of of talent and how it will matriculate as it goes up. You know, I I never forget I I was covering. Mississippi State's football team when Jackie Sherrill was the coach. And I used to ride around practice. It was my first time covering colleges after I was in college. So I'm like the age of his players. And I used to ride around on the golf cart with him at practice. And he would just – we'd just talk all throughout practice because, you know, his coaches are doing their thing. He's riding around kind of overseeing the whole thing. 
and he's just schooling me on why guys do certain things. It, it taught me how to evaluate, how to watch. They taught me how to watch tape. All of his assistants. It was it was the best training ground I could have had covering sports because they were explaining to me that process that they go through. And I'm telling you, coach, I was stunned at how many guys they hit on in terms of, you know, a guy that you didn't think was going to be some big time player that turns out to be really good because of the way they worked day after day, year after year. And then I look at the NBA and kind of translate that same thing. And I'm watching, I'm studying some of these players myself. And, like, I can't for the life of me figure out why a guy is talented. And I always bring this guy up. You you know him. You've coached him. Stanley Johnson's player profile, just if you look at what he accomplished, in, you know, as a high school player coming up, that I can never fathom how a guy with that much talent and ability didn't end up being a better NBA player so far in his career. I know his mother's background. I'm a, we went to the same college. Um, she's the greatest women's player in Jackson State University history, maybe in the school's history. Like, so he comes from a stock that says this guy should be a hell of a grinder and a worker. And then I see him in the NBA and, he, and it doesn't, tra- like, it doesn't fit. And I don't understand, you know, I just can't fathom, like, what goes wrong in that process for a guy where he doesn't realize his potential? Yeah, I, I mean, look, that that's one, um, you know, like I'm saying with coaches evaluating games, I mean, when I look back at, um, you know, my time in Detroit, um, that that probably is the one that sticks with me more than anything, you know, yeah. and, you know, was, did I make the mistake on the pick? Did I make the mistake in the development of him you know did we miss on the evaluation mm-hmm. or did i did i make mistakes in his development because i think my time in the league you know Dwayne Wade Lamar Odom Ray for Alston Courtney Lee JJ Redick i mean i've had a pretty good record of young guys Karan Butler young guys yeah. developing and playing well right and i just you know, didn't get it out of him. And yeah, to, to this day, it's one that, that really bugs me because, you know, I, number one, I feel for Stanley, um, you know, you right. want to see everybody succeed. Right. Um, and certainly he has to take a, a major part of the responsibility, you know, Absolutely. Um, but, but from a team standpoint, yeah, that more than anything, you know, people questioned a lot of things I did in Detroit and I do too to some degree personnel, but that's the one. And, and, you know, which side did we make the mistake on a little bit of both? I don't know. You know, what we thought he was going to be was a, a real tough guy an elite level defender mm-hmm. um, with incredible toughness and competitiveness who could, you know, be sort of the versatile guy as we got, you know, as the league was transitioning to this, positionless stuff we thought he was a guy who could even initiate offense at times which he did we saw signs of it mm-hmm. but could play as a small four a two a three guard every position except the five and even switch on to some smaller fives and battle them um and and we knew the shooting was a, a bit of a problem but we thought could come along I mean that's what that's what our evaluation was right. and I think he had good signs his rookie year. Like if you go back and, and watch the first round of the playoffs, his rookie year in 2016, playing against Le- playing a lot of his minutes against LeBron. Yeah. He had a pretty darn good playoff series where you, where I really thought like we're on the right track here. And it ended up being the highlight at, uh, of his time in uh, Detroit. And um, man, I, I just, I don't know. Um, you know, yeah. I, I don't know. And, and it bugs me. And it will continue to bug me um, <laughs> probably until the day I leave this earth. Right. No, it's just weird. He's just one of those many players that I've watched over the years and said to myself, all right, you know, because we don't know. We, we literally don't know. A guy, I, I love that idea when, when somebody says a guy is a surefire or a can't miss. And I'm going, man, they can, 
you never know. You just never know. And and I wonder if this new G League uh, situation where they're going to start taking these top high school players that will go straight to the G League and get developed. I'm wondering if that maybe is a way to make even more detailed evaluations of these players because I don't know if there's any sane way for an organization to vet them other than to, to do everything you can and then cross your fingers and just hope that, that it takes and that everything works out the way you want it to. Cause I, I don't have explanations for why some guys who were supremely talented, you know, um, don't pan out. And it, sometimes it's injury, you know, sometimes it's something out, outside the realm of their control, but for guys who stay healthy and just don't make it at this level, at that NBA level, it's always pain me, coach, just watching them going, why would, like, this guy, I know the guy's got talent. You, you meet him and you get to know him and you figure out they don't seem, they're not a bad person. They're, you know, they're doing the right thing. And then there are other guys that you know exactly why. So it's, so yeah. it's, a, it's a very <laughs> specific, you know, situation where if you don't have those red flags, there's something, that, there's just like something in the fate that says this, it's not going to happen. And I, like you said, I, you go to your graves thinking, why, why, why wouldn't yeah. this guy be a great, a great talent or a more productive talent than he was? Um, and to me, it's the great mystery of, of this, of the sport, of every sport. It's just, that, I, I agree. But that with that said, there are some guys who have proven more successful than everybody else in terms of talent evaluation. And the thing that is, has always sort of amazed me is that when you see those people, why people aren't willing to pay huge money for those guys. I mean, <laughs> there's nothing more important than talent evaluation. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean you have to elevate the guy to be the prime guy because there's other skills that go into running an organization. It's not just talent evaluation. So I'm not talking about why do you have to make the great talent evaluators necessarily into your GM. Mm -hmm. because there's other things that go with that. There's, you know, managing the salary cap and managing all the people in your office and, and all of that. But man, if you can find one of those guys, why you wouldn't just go all out and pay them as much or more than you're paying coaches in this league. Um, there's not that many of them. I look at a guy like who I worked with for a while, Chet Kammerer in Miami, Mm -hmm. whose name hardly even comes out. And if you look, I mean, Miami, and we're not even just talking the draft, but when you're talking Bam Adebayo and Tyler Harrow and Duncan Robinson and Kendrick Nunn, and I go back to the time I was there, Eddie House, and, mm -hmm. you know, like, this guy has hit on Udonis Haslam undrafted. Um, and then lesser guys that people forget about, Mike James. Malik Allen, like, right. he's hit on all these guys. It's been Chet Kammer for years and years and years. Now, Miami's smart enough. They know what they have. They're not going to let him go. But, man, I mean, somebody should have said, hey, I know Chet Kammer is getting near the end of his contract. Get the word out to his agent that we'll pay <laughs> him $5 million a year to yeah. come here. I, I honestly – there's not that many of those guys, but when you just start seeing – one organization hit on that many guys. And now Eric Spolstra and his staff have done a tremendous job developing guys too. But yeah. when you've seen a guy hit on that many guys, man, you got to go get that guy. I mean, you got to go get him. It's just, I mean, and I wonder, that's part of the league. You know, when we talk about, you know, organizations and, and, and how they're run, I, I start looking at, who has success? Like you start looking at the, I'll take Denver as a prime example right now, Denver's team. And people always ask me like, where did, you know, how does Denver come together and have this team without a, a huge, you know, ready-made superstar dropping in their lap? And I'm like, go look at their player development component. Go look at whatever in the, the guts of their organization and figure out what they did to turn it around, what they did to change the culture, what they did that, that sets them apart and, and makes them different. And that's usually where the answer lies. 
Um, it's it's a guy like you're talking about in Miami, where historically, if you've had a, an organization, the Spurs, clearly they do something better than everybody else. It's not just the luck of them having Tim Duncan, Manu Ginobili, and Tony Parker all at the same time. I mean, there has to be something else that goes into it. I think, to me, that might be the hardest part about the evaluation we make. And now you're on this side of the coach, like we are in the media, trying to figure out how in the hell this team or that team does this and is successful. You, unless you're exposed to all these different pieces, like what Toronto has done, to me, they're another one. Prime example, knowing Masai as long as I have, knowing his his attention to detail, his his understanding of how to evaluate talent, not just coaches in, in front of people, players and everything else. I mean, it takes such an eye to me to figure out why this thing works the way it does. And I'm wondering, have you sharpened that eye of your own being on this side of the game now, being on the media side? Well, I, I mean, I've seen the same things you have. And, and I think it's a combination because a lot of player development goes to having the right players with the qualities you talked about mm -hmm. earlier. You know, guys who have a great commitment to getting better, guys who are coachable, guys who are who are really driven, that can overcome adversity. I mean, those are the guys that you can develop as players. If I, if I look back um, at the young guys that I've had and the, and the guys that developed and the guys that didn't, I'm not sure we really did anything differently, Seku. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just think there's, you know – the guys like Dwayne Wade and Udonis Haslam and JJ Redick and Courtney Lee and I mean, you know, go down the list. There's guys who are going to take everything they're taught and or whether it's on the court or in the weight room or about how to be a professional in your nutrition and do it to get better. And then there's other guys that don't. So I think you're, and you hit on it early. I mean, the, the player development starts with the guys you pick. And so much of that is being able to understand what a guy's basketball character is like. And that's where I think people get the edge even more than they do in, in a strict player development thing. So, you know, they've done a tremendous job in Toronto and, and Dwayne Casey and then Nick Nurse have, have certainly done a great job teaching guys the game and everything else. But Pascal Siakam and Fred Van Vliet are, are different dudes. I mean, yeah. you know, those are guys driven to play. Are they, you know, I haven't been around them and coached them, but are they a little bit tougher mentally and physically? Are they a little bit smarter? You know, all of those things. And, and clearly, um, you know, Masai Ujiri and his front office were able to spot those guys. And then you've got good coaches working with them, um, you know, but it's hard to ferret out. Like would those, you know, are they better? Is Toronto better at the drafting end of it? Um, or are they better at the player development end of it? Or is it a little bit of both? Like where's the advantage coming I, I would suspect it's maybe a little bit of both yeah. um but I think it starts with like getting the right guy not just the right player and certainly San Antonio for a much longer period of time has done it better than anyone yeah it's it's funny you mentioned Courtney Lee I I, I start jogging my memory of of guys and like I always try and go back and look at players and like when's the first time I saw them to, to where they are now. I'll give you a great bit of history on Courtney Lee. So when we lived in Indianapolis and I was covering the Pacers and the NBA there, we lived uh, around the corner from Pike High School. Um, so I saw Courtney Lee play in high school. He was maybe the third or fourth option on his high school team, which was a really good team. Um, they had a guy, Robert Vaden, um, I think his name was, and they had two other guys all went division one, one went to Xavier. Um, they had a point guard. They're all, you know, all solid players, really good high school team. And when Courtney Lee was there, we, you know, I took my boys when they were little, we went around the corner and watched some high school games like I've done forever. Um, and I, I wouldn't have picked him if I, if you'd have told me which guy on that floor that night ends up being 
a pro and last as long as, as he did, I wouldn't have picked Courtney Lee. So I don't know what he did from the time when I saw him when he was at Pike High School to Western Kentucky to then being in, in, on a team in the finals. And he's a, a very specific component to what you guys were doing, you know, as a young player in the league to the veteran he's become. I, I don't, you know, I, I, like, I, I say to myself, like, what did I miss? Like, what didn't I see in Courtney Lee's basketball character, a term you use that I'm stealing, by the way, Coach, I'm going to use that. Um, what didn't I see in his basketball character that had to be there from the time he was putting on that Pike High School jersey? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that you missed anything. That stuff, been, I, I think you you learn it when you're when you're on the inside and you see it. I mean, you know, obviously it was a great mm-hmm. draft pick by Otis Smith here, but I think right. even Otis would tell you it's not that you knew that. I mean, you you suspect you're you're getting a guy, and he was a four year guy, and the whole thing, and and you know, so mm-hmm. you do get to know him a little bit better, um, but. But we had no idea. And certainly we were coming off 52 wins a year before. Um, We knew we had a good team coming back. And we certainly weren't counting on a rookie who was picked 20th or 21st um, to play the role. He didn't. He ends up starting on a team that goes to the NBA Finals as a rookie. I mean, that kind of stuff doesn't happen very often. But what he had a remarkable ability to do – was to fit in and figure out what his what his role was and we ended up trading him uh the next year uh to new jersey you know in the vince carter deal um and new jersey actually ended up i think being slightly disappointed in him because you know they were getting rid of vince carter and they really wanted him even though they were rebuilding they wanted him to be a go-to scorer and that really wasn't it's not that he didn't have the skill level really wasn't his mentality. I mean, Courtney has the mentality of a winner, but the mentality of a complimentary guy where he's going to think first and foremost about uh, defense and about, you know, playing mistake free basketball and being really efficient. And so, you know, part of it with this is fit too, you know, it's just fit. You know, your skill set, your mindset fits what that team is looking for or it doesn't. And so part of it for the players, I hate to say, it's a little bit luck of the draw for anybody other than probably the top 30 or 40 guys in the league who are just going to be really good wherever they go. The rest of them, how well they do has a lot to do with who they're playing with, who they're playing for, what the expectations are, and everything else. Yeah. It's just a – it's just fascinating to me. I mean, like I said, you get you get a chance to think about it during a slow slow period like this, where you just start evaluating like what makes you know, you. And again, that that term basketball character, I, I need I'm, I wrote it down because I'm like that is a perfect way of of uh, labeling that that kind of intangible that every guy you know what does does a guy have intangibly. That, that makes him different. Because this, I, I tell people all the time, uh, a guy who makes the NBA in at all is clearly a cut above the any dude who ever dribbles the basketball. A guy who lasts right. as long as some of these guys last now, that that's special. Like this, we're talking about a very rare person that can do that. We are. And, and here's the other thing I don't think people totally understand. And that's why I use the term basketball character. Sort of got that from my, my brother years ago because, mm-hmm. you know, we use, everybody uses the word character, but it, but it means different things. And I think there's a big difference when you're looking at athletes, when you're talking about sort of on-court character and off-court character. So the, the best example I can give you is – when we got Lamar Odom in Miami, mm-hmm. um, had been a really good player in the league for the Clippers, you know, had put up numbers, but not on good teams. And there were a lot of questions about his character. And the funny thing is a lot of them went back to the fact that the kid hated school. Right. So, you know, people made it a character flaw that he didn't go to class at 
Rhode Island and things like that. And he hated school and didn't do what he needed to take. And then he'd had a couple of, uh, you know, marijuana arrests. And, and certainly he was one of the only uh, 20 and 21 year old people <laughs> in America smoking marijuana. You know, I mean, so clearly that was a character flaw, Seku, because, right. you know, certainly none of the uh, kids of scions of our society would do anything <laughs> like that, exactly. you know, but, but it was interesting because he was thought of as a character risk. I'm telling you, he, he's one of the best people, best teammates, best guys to coach that I've ever been around. I yes. mean, people yes. loved playing with him, unselfish, almost to a fault as a player, played both ends of the floor, extremely coachable, um, would do anything asked, would sacrifice. I, I mean, I would say that uh, at least at that time, and at least probably through his Laker days, you would put his basketball character off the charts. But people look at this other stuff, and, and sometimes it can go the other way. And those guys off the court who are great when you send them out with, you know, say the alumni in college or the boosters, and then you get them to the NBA, and they're great when they go to the public events and all of that. Mm. But maybe on the court, they're not great workers and they're not the toughest guys in the world or the most unselfish guys in the world. And they'll get labeled as having really high character, but in a basketball sense, not really. And so I think the one thing I've learned uh, my time in the league is you, you got to be very specific what you're talking about with character, because a lot of times you're talking about some of those off the court things that really do not carry over very much into what's going on in a competitive situation. No, that's a great point. And, and it's funny, you mentioned Lamar. I'll never forget when he was in Miami, when he was with you guys, he used to come to the scores table. And this is back when, when the writers actually sat down that close to the court. He would come over and get gum out of the little tray and throw the rappers at us and smile every time. It's just a great, <laughs> you know, it was, it was just a, a great, nice guy, like super nice human being. And like I see to this day, I, I saw him uh, at a, you know, at a Hawks game this past season in the hallway. And like he, he came up to me and we laughed about when he was in Miami. I told him, I said, man, you, I said, you like one of my favorite, most delightful human beings to deal with when you were in Miami and in, in LA. And he laughed. Because he remembered, you know, it's, it's so weird you bring him up because he's a prime example, Coach, of what I tell people about. When they ask me about what are these guys really like and do you really get to know them? And I said, no, nah. I said, we don't. I said, we don't know. We don't really get to know anybody, uh, you know, in terms of what they do it privately and when there's nobody around. I said, but you can only judge guys based on how they treat you or they comport themselves in that space. And you're right. He's one of those guys to me who's supremely uh, miscast as, as a character. Who's a guy with a lot of good human qualities um, that I think get overlooked. It's, it's fascinating. The, the player and the, the human relationships that you develop over the course of the years, covering sports, coaching sports, being involved in them. It, it's just, it, to me, it's a rabbit hole. You could go down with so many guys, because it's, it's always a process trying to figure out what makes guys tick and what makes them move and operate the way they do. Um, I'm wondering, do you miss, when, when, you, when you're not coaching, do, which part of it do you miss the most? Is it the, the human relationships? Is it the X and O's, the, you know, the game itself, the thrills, the, the adrenaline, the excitement of games? Like, what part of it tugs at you the most when you're not coaching? Uh, there's two things. I, I think the camaraderie with a, uh, with a staff and, and with a good group of players, um, you know, that camaraderie of, of being in the locker room, being on the planes, being on the buses, um, you know, that part I miss. Um, and then the second thing is just the uh, challenge of, of trying to figure it out. You know, how do we get better how do we beat a certain team? How do we guard some of these great players? Um, the, the challenge of, of trying to make it work 
with the guys. You've got all of those things to just, you know, every day is a mental challenge of trying to figure out how you get better. So those would be my two main things. Um, the thrill, I mean, the games are great, but, but to be honest, um, you know, I, co- I started coaching as a head coach anyway at the Division three level in college, and those games felt to me the same way the, <laughs> you know, the finals did in 2009 because, right. you know, as I've had a lot of coaches say to me, and it's very wise, you know, the biggest game is the one you're coaching. You know, so, you know, if you're a junior high coach out there, a middle school coach, you know, the biggest game isn't the NBA Finals. It's your game tomorrow. I mean, that's that's the game. And once the game starts, how many people are in the arena and the noise and all of that, you know, sort of goes out the window. Now, the magnitude of the game, you know, but that's the same at every level. I mean, right. the, the game means a little bit more if you're in the state playoffs in high school than a regular season game. And so there's a little of that. But, yeah, no, it, it's mainly just the camaraderie. Um, which I've felt at every level and I've felt that challenge at every level, you know, how are we going to work it out? Should we be playing a different guy? Should we be in a different defense? How are we guarding LeBron tonight? I mean, I've had, I, I don't miss having <laughs> to think about those things. I'll, I'll tell you that. Some of those great players where you're going, how are we guarding James Harden tonight? Yeah, no, that'll drive you crazy. That'll drive you crazy. But, um, but it's still what gets you going. Like, can we find the answer at least for one night? You know, whatever you find as an answer one night, and it won't necessarily work the next time, but it's, it's that challenge that um, sort of drives me. Yeah. Well, I, listen, I'm selfish. I love having you on the desk when I'm there, and I love listening to you break down games. But I'm not stupid. I know, I know coaches coach, and, and, I, and I have an itchy feeling. I'm like, man – Every time we get a good former coach or, or a coach that's on hiatus, somebody comes and snatches him away. So I'm, I got my fingers crossed that, that uh, we keep a Van Gundy on our roster. But I'm not going to be mad when you do go back to coaching. I know it's going to happen because I'll, I'll have a better understanding of, of, of everything you do having worked with you. It's been a, it's been a pleasure, man. Um, and, I, and I appreciate you taking some time during this, you know, the shutdown because I – I've craved basketball, like just talking like we do at work and you don't have it. That's the one thing we're missing is those those conversations where Karan and, and Quentin are in the in the you know, in the makeup room going at you and I I had no idea how much these guys adored Stan Van Gundy until I saw you walk through our doors down there. These these guys love you. I mean like they are they look like they tell stories all the time when you're not around about how much fun they had, you know, being around you and and working with you so you should you should feel good even if they don't tell you how much they love Stan Van Gundy well and I miss those you know what I miss more than anything on the lockout I think it's it's what I was talking about when I miss coaching the camaraderie it's the same thing in the lockout like I miss those Friday nights you know Saturday was always a little quieter but those Friday nights there were so many people around you know Sam Mitchell was was doing his thing and Steve Smith was working with you and I, yeah. you know, at, at times, you know, and, and then Quran and, and Q were around, like you said, and, you know, all those discussions while you're waiting to go on. And um, man, I miss those. I mean, I, I like basketball people, you know, my dad yeah. coached for over 40 years and, and I grew up around basketball people, virtually all of my dad's friends were coaches Some in other sports, but mainly basketball guys. So where I've always felt most comfortable around basketball people, players, coaches, writers, anyone who's around the game, that's where I feel comfortable. And that's why I love doing this today, because in this in this time where we're all down, we don't get enough opportunity. I don't get enough opportunity to talk to basketball people. And so any opportunity I I get. is fantastic and uh, yeah i miss those friday nights sitting in there um my <laughs> wife would notice it i would come back on uh on sundays and get home like late morning and and she would she would say oh, you always come back from there so happy <laughs> you know and and i said well it's two things i got to be around great people who were basketball people and i didn't lose 
Exactly. I didn't exactly. lose. I went undefeated on the weekend. It was a good road trip. How many exactly. times do you go on a, on a two-day trip in the NBA and come home without a loss? It's fantastic. Coach, I promise you, if you stick with us, you will be undefeated. You never lose any more games. I like that part. I really do. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, look, I'll, I'll, I'll hopefully see you uh, when, we, when we get some semblance of a season resumed at some point. I'm fingers crossed. But in the meantime, we'll talk. And uh, I'll, I'll stay in touch. Obviously, you do the same. And we'll, uh, we'll maybe have a chance to talk basketball some more. It sounds great. Thank you. Thanks, bud. Appreciate you, Coach. Oh man, that, that's that's my Friday night guy, man. That's that is my my Friday night partner in crime this past season until the season shifted and he had to start calling games. Stan Van Gundy, um, a basketball lifer, one of my favorite people I've met in my time, uh, you know, around the NBA. Just in terms of being a genuine good person, you know, who who talks what he what he talks and 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 you know is is honest in forthright about everything as you can find. I mean, how many, how many guys who have been in his position could be as, you know, forthcoming with, with things that he says in reflection on what he's done throughout the course of his career. So always appreciate uh, Stan Van Gundy and his time um, joining us here on the Hangtime Podcast. We're, again, we're, we're dealing like everybody else as the, this global pandemic continues to uh, alter our regular existence, but uh, we're going to keep doing what we do here at the Hangtime Podcast. Um, I can't say enough about all the support we get, and certainly my producer, Anthony Bonaparte, the work he puts in. We appreciate you taking the time out to, uh, to join us as well. Can never say that enough for all the years we've been doing this. So um, for everybody here, we'll see you next time on the Hangtime Podcast. One is done, but in case you want another one, here's the link to all the